57 through to 112. Oh, how I love you, your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I more than I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I may, I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws and have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage for ages, forever. They, they are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Thanks, Josh. Let's pray. Plant it deep in our hearts and um, change us by your word. Amen. In the 17th century, George Wishart was Bishop of Edinburgh and he was condemned to death. The custom of the time was to allow the condemned to select a psalm to be sung before their death. Wishart was known more for his shrewdness than saintliness and church. that one. So he chose Psalm 119, and before two-thirds of the psalm could be sung, his pardon arrived, and Wishart was saved. I'm sure from that day on, Psalm 119 was his favorite psalm. There are certain psalms that many of us are familiar with. We may know the whole psalm, or we may just know a key verse. I bet a good number of people in this room have a favorite psalm, whether they can recite it all or not. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or 139, you have searched me and you know me, or Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, or 121, I lift up my eyes to the mountains, where does my help come from? But I wonder if there's anyone here who could genuinely, from the bottom of their heart, say that their favorite psalm is Psalm 119. We might know about Psalm 119. We know it's the longest psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You might know it's an acrostic psalm, which I'm going to come back to. You might even vaguely know that it's about God's law. You probably know some verses from it, although you may not know they're from Psalm 119. But beyond that, my guess is that few know much more. 
Ask yourself, have you ever read Psalm 119 all the way through in one go? If you were a very good Anglican who followed the lectionary for your daily readings, it would actually take you seven weeks reading around 30 verses every Wednesday. If I'd suggested that we just sat and listened to Psalm 119 from beginning to end tonight, many of us would have inwardly groaned. But why? Because I have to tell you, there's just slightly over half the words in my sermon as there are in Psalm 119. Um, So it would take you half as long to read it. What is it about reading big chunks of scripture that we have an aversion to? Those of us who like to read novels or autobiographies or history books or even big theological tomes, if that's your thing, I bet you can lose yourself completely in them and read page after page. How many people took a book on holiday and finished it? Just out of interest. Yeah, quite a few. I was away for a fortnight in July and I read three Well, the Bible is the length of about eight average novels. That's all. Just eight novels. If I'd been reading the Bible rather than the books I took on holiday, I'd have got as far as Chronicles. But we don't do that with the Bible. We get stressed out when we're behind on our year through the Bible and have to read ten chapters of Genesis to catch up. Why is that? Why do we only read it in little chunks, usually alongside notes that tell us what to think about it? Now, I'm aware that there are people here who do just sit and read page after page, and I am making a very broad, sweeping generalization, but I know I'm not alone in being someone who claims to love this book, but in reality spends a lot more time reading something else. Why do we find it so hard? And why should it bother us? Well, the simple answer to both questions is the enemy. If there's one thing he wants to stop us doing, it's opening the pages of our Bibles. Because in there, we learn the truth about him. In there, we learn the truth about ourselves. In there, we learn the truth about the creator of the universe, the one who holds everything in his hands, the one whose love for us was so intense that he sent his son to die for us, to reclaim us as his own. In this book, in this book we learn the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so the enemy will keep us from it at every opportunity. He will tell us it's too hard or too boring or not relevant anymore. John Ortberg says that people cheer the Bible, buy the Bible, give the Bible, own the Bible. They just don't actually read the Bible. Have you ever had that moment when you can't find your Bible? And you realize you can't actually remember where you last had it? or even when you last had it. We have the most earth-shattering truth, the most brilliant treasure in our hands. But we have such easy access to it that we've forgotten what a privilege it is. Within the pages of this book, we have the very words of God. 
Gandhi said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilizations to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. But you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. The creator of everything we see around us not only saw fit to send his son to die for us, he chose to tell us his story. His complete plan for the salvation of the world. He chose to reveal himself through us, not just in the person of Jesus, but through the pages of this book. And we bury it in piles of paperwork. We rest our coffee on it, or we deign to give it 20 minutes a day. Let's be honest, 10 minutes a day. I've talked to people about their daily Bible reading and heard things like, I don't always have time to do it all, so I just read the notes in the book and then pray about it. No, no. If we don't have time to do it all, we're too busy or have allowed too many other things to take priority over our relationship with God, and I'm talking to myself here. If we genuinely don't have time to do the Bible passage and the notes in the book, why would we not skip the notes? Because it's easier and safer that way. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we should be venerating or worshipping the Bible, but we should perhaps take the words on its pages a bit more seriously sometimes. And we shouldn't abuse the privilege of such easy access by sidelining it and taking it for granted. But what does the Bible say about how we should treat it? Well, let's see what Psalm 119 has to say, or at least this chunk, verses 97 to 112. I think these verses answer two questions, the first of which is why we should study the Word of God. Why should we study the Word of God? You may have noticed that although this chunk does talk about the Word of God, most of the references are to laws or precepts or statutes, things we don't think are going to be easy or encouraging to hear about. In fact, throughout our Psalm 119, eight terms are used. Depending on your translation, these will look something like commands, decrees, law, judgments, precepts, promises, statutes, and word. These eight terms form the backbone of this psalm. In fact, 171 out of 176 verses mention at least one of those terms explicitly. Between them, these terms seem to imply that the psalmist is talking about the whole written revelation of God. Now, obviously for him, it would have been a less complete revelation than we have. But shouldn't that mean that we should apply these statements to ourselves even more? We've been given the full, final, written revelation of God and the words of Jesus himself. How much more should we trust, obey, study, and learn from this full revelation? So when we look at Psalm 119, we need to keep in mind that we're not talking about the Ten Commandments or Levitical law or bits we think don't apply to us anymore. We're talking about the whole of Scripture so why should we study the Bible? Why can't we just read it and then go about our daily lives? 
And anyway, if we need people who write commentaries or who get up and preach every week, doesn't that just mean it's too hard to understand? Kierkegaard said, the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. If we understand what the words of Scripture are saying, we have no choice but to obey it. Now, don't get me wrong, there are bits of the Bible that I don't understand, bits that I need explaining. But we can understand the sweep of Scripture. We can all understand the broad strokes of what God is saying. We might need help to understand writing style or the context of a letter. But in reality, that information just adds layers to our understanding. At a basic level, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can all read the words of this book and know what it's telling us. The reformers called this the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture, removing the power of understanding Scripture from the clergy where it had been traditionally held. It was their belief that the ordinary man on the street could read the Bible and find within its pages the fundamental truth that salvation was possible through Jesus. Now, that might sound dangerously like I'm trying to put myself out of a job, and it's a good job that Adrian's got a new one. But it might also not surprise you to hear that I am passionate about Bible teaching, all of us knowing and understanding the Bible better. And the reason that I can hold both the clarity of Scripture and the need for Bible teaching together is that I know that on my own, I will twist the words of this book to make it say what I want it to say. On my own, I will come up with interpretations that work for me and are easier to live by than what God actually says. But, says the psalmist, if we really understand the word of God and then live by what it says, we will find life. By obeying the word of God, the psalmist says he finds guidance and protection. If you look at that second chunk, which is start there. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. There's guidance. How do we know the right way to go, the right decision to make, the right way to live? We look to the word of God. When decisions are more gray than black and white, how do we work out the godly response? We look to the word of God. When the world tells us that truth is subjective and fluid and what was once true isn't necessarily true anymore, where do we find solid ground on which to stand? We look to the word of God. And then verse 109. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. There's protection. How do we defeat the devil's schemes? How do we stand against the powers of this world? How do we make it out of this life alive? We look to the word of God. Think of Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by the enemy. He had only one response to the enemy's attempts to turn him from the truth, the words of Scripture. Whatever he was tempted with, Jesus responded with the truth, the word of God. Why would we try and find another way? 
Whatever this world throws at us, whatever trials or temptations we face, the answer is in the pages of this book. But Jesus didn't have to get his concordance out or look it up on Google. Jesus knew the answer was in Scripture because he knew Scripture. He had studied it. He had learnt it. He had it at his fingertips. Why then would we imagine that we can make it through this life without understanding and knowing what Scripture says? Now, it's true that you're probably not going to find the answer to where you should live, what job you should take, or where you should go for dinner in here. But about the things that really matter, the life-changing things, our relationships with each other, our relationship with God, the answers are all in here. The Word of God will guide and protect us. It will help us to navigate our way to the end and will lead us home if we get to know it, if we study it and spend time with it, both in personal reading and corporate study. But the psalmist doesn't really focus on studying the Word of God in um, this chunk. Verse 102 says, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. And verse 108 says, Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. But beyond that, the language is very different. This psalm is not written by someone who finds the words of Scripture fascinating or academically stimulating. He's not a history buff who finds the twists and turns of Israel's story interesting. He loves, he adores, doors. He delights in the word of God. He speaks with incredible passion for the law, for God's precepts and statutes. Even the way the psalm is structured speaks of that love. I mentioned earlier that this is an acrostic psalm. Each stanza, each little chunk of eight verses is marked by a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are other acrostic psalms, but they tend to use a chunk, but this uses the whole alphabet. And every verse in each stanza starts with the relevant letter. We've completely lost that in translation, but that's how it works. There are 22 stanzas of eight verses. It's perhaps interesting that the eight terms for God's word we saw before appear on average 22 times each. C.S. Lewis wrote about this psalm and said... Psalm 119 is not and does not pretend to be a sudden outpouring of the heart. It is a pattern, a thing done like embroidery, stitch by stitch, through long, quiet hours, for love of the subject and for the delight in leisurely, disciplined craftsmanship. The psalmist wrote Psalm 119 about the word of God and his delight for it because of his delight in it. He wanted to produce something beautiful and well-crafted to celebrate the thing he loved, that God might take delight in his work as much as he delights in God's word. So the second question, why should we delight in the word of God? And perhaps as a supplementary to that, how do we delight in it? Steve and I celebrated our 21st wedding anniversary this week. Uh, we'd been together four years before we got married. We knew we loved each other, and I guess we thought we knew each other. But if there's one thing I've learned in the last 21 years, it's that we didn't really know each other at all. 
We're both still learning every day. We learn new things that we love about each other. We learn new things that annoy us about each other. And sometimes it can just be a case of catching up as we grow and change. So there'll always be something new to learn. And that's hopefully true about any relationship, whether it's marriage or friendship. We keep learning. There are still surprises, still unexpected responses that keep us on our toes. Whatever the relationship, we get to know each other by spending time together, talking to each other, listening to each other, sharing our stories, our pain, our joys, the things that just get under our skin for good or bad, our regrets, our dreams. That's how we learn about people. We don't know each other just because we know where people work or how many kids they've got. To really know someone, you need to know their heart. God really knows us. He knows our hopes, our regrets. He knows our pain and our joys. He knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. And in the pages of this book, he pours out his heart to us. That we would know him, really know him. That we wouldn't just know the things he's done, but we would know his intense, jealous, passionate love for his people. That we would know what gets under his skin. That we would know what makes him dance for joy. I'm not saying that we can't physically hear God. I know people who often do and have myself at times. It's usually been when he's telling me to get a grip. We can have a conversation with God and he will audibly tell us his heart sometimes. And for some people. But for most of us, and most of the time, the way we will know God better, the way we will hear his heart, is through the pages of scripture. That's why this book is such an incredible treasure. It's not a manual of how to live. It's not just a history textbook explaining how we messed up and God had to save us. This is the Father's heart laid bare for us. It's the most honest and complete autobiography you will ever read, gifted to us by the creator and sustainer of the universe. And the beauty is that this side of glory, we will never reach the point where we know it all, where we can say that we completely know God. There will always be something new to learn, something that this book can reveal to us. Whatever the world says, or the latest trendy idea claims, the only way we will ever really know God is through his word. Do you want to know God? Do you want to understand why he does the things he does? Why he bothers with us? Why he keeps teaching us, keeps wiping the slate clean and letting us start again? The answers are in here. When we begin a new relationship, we easily allow it to become all-consuming. I'm sure many of us have had those nights where you just sit up and talk all night long, getting to know more about each other. And that's often the way we react when we first meet God. We're desperate to know him more. We can't get enough of our Bibles. They go everywhere with us, and we become those annoying people who've always got something amazing or exciting that they found as they were having their quiet times. But for some reason, for the vast majority of us, we allow that to fade. We treat our relationship with God in the same way as our relationships with each other. We allow that fire we had at first to dwindle. 
And we think that's only natural as we settle into our relationship with God, but it's not, and it doesn't have to be. Why do we allow our passion to fade? Why do we stop getting excited by the word of God? Why do we reach the point of believing that we know enough for now? What does the psalmist say? Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. If you read all the way through Psalm 119, it's clear that the psalmist isn't someone who says he loves the Bible, but then actually goes days without opening it, which, if we're honest, many of us are. He truly delights in the Word of God because he recognizes that it's the only way he can really know and understand God. But his real, genuine delight leads him to spend time in Scripture. He doesn't delight in the fact that he has God's Word. He delights in studying it, learning it, meeting God in it. The Word of God isn't an extra special treat that we allow ourselves when we've been really good or worked really hard or had a really bad day. When it says, I meditate on it all day long, I don't think he means he spends all day, every day, reading the Bible. But I do think he means that it's on his mind all day. Whatever he's doing, whatever life throws in his path, he's thinking about scripture he's learnt. He's thinking about what he read that morning, what he heard taught at the weekend. He doesn't give excuses as to why he didn't have a quiet time today. I was up late, the kids were annoying. I've had a big presentation to do at work. I'm just too busy, too tired, too distracted at the moment. I'm not disciplined enough. He recognizes that the only way all of that, all of life makes any sense is if he's first turned to the word of God. He doesn't claim not to be disciplined enough or not have enough willpower. He just reads it. Be honest. How many people have used the too busy, too tired, too distracted, not disciplined enough excuse? But how many can also manage not to ever miss an episode of Poldock or Downton or the next episode of whichever box set we're currently working through? And how many know that when we do make the effort and regularly spend time in Scripture, we feel better, we handle life better, we feel closer to God? What is going on here? If there's one thing the enemy wants to do, it's keep us from reading our Bibles, and it's not something he finds hard for many of us. But throughout Psalm 119, it's clear that the pages of Scripture are the only place we will find true happiness, real fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction. The psalm begins, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. It's been said that Psalm 119 is essentially an exposition of Psalm 1, which says, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Isn't that the life we want? 
planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season, not withering when life becomes tough. So why do we look for it anywhere else? I've recently been on camp, and towards the end of the week, I was given a letter to pass to one of the children in my dorm. Winnie's mum had sent a letter by recorded next-day guaranteed delivery at a cost of £10.50. It wasn't a birthday card, just a letter. And it came two days before the children were going home. And it seemed just a little over the top to me. But the delight on Winnie's face at receiving this letter was incredible. Now, even seeing that still didn't really make a lot of sense to me until I read something from St. Augustine this week. He said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. And I suddenly realized why Winnie's mum had gone to so much trouble to get that card to her. She didn't know what sort of week Winnie was having. She didn't know if she was happy or hating it. But she wanted Winnie to know that she was loved, that her family missed her and couldn't wait for her to get home. Winnie read that card over and over again for the last couple of days, even though she was very happy and enjoying camp. She told me time and time again that her dad had said he was proud of her, that her brother missed her. And every time she read it or she talked about it, she beamed. She was one of those children with the most incredible smile anyway. But this letter took it to the next level. She seemed to smile with every fiber of her being. This book is our letter from home. God has written to tell us he loves us, to tell us he misses us, and he can't wait for us to go home.